You're listening to Movie Fighters on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Go to greenlitpodcast.com to learn more. Sucker. This is Movie Fighters, the show where Chris Sims and I, Matt Wilson, we watch movies and we beat them up. And as promised last month, in spite of all the changes that have occurred in that time, in spite of the decade that has happened between our last episode and this one, it's been a long year this month. We are going to be watching. The 2008 film directed by Neil Marshall, Doomsday. And yes, we chose this before all of this started. Doomsday is a post-apocalyptic, like, zombie virus movie. Technically. It has zero bearing on the real world, period. Matt, have you seen this movie before? No, actually. I had every intent of seeing it, and I've heard people talk about how wild it is, but I have not ever seen it. It's actually, And it's also Neil Marshall's follow-up to The Descent, which is – I love The Descent. I talked about how much I enjoyed The Descent when we watched Hellboy last month. It's not the wildest movie I've ever seen, because I, I still believe that honor goes to the South African action movie Kill and Kill Again from the 80s, mm-hmm. which has a character named Hot Dog in it. <laughs> Which we will probably have to do on the show. That movie is streaming now, by the way, so we will probably have to do that on the show eventually. There is a swerve in this movie, Matt, that you probably know about if you've heard people talk about it. But it is impossible to see coming. It is amazing. Uh, I watched this movie after it came out on DVD, because I do not believe anyone saw it in the movie theater. And I remember asking my buddy Matthew Allen Smith, Team Smithy, who has worked on me on a couple of comic books, fantastic artist, uh, asked him, hey, is Doomsday any good? And I believe his response was, well, it's no Con Air. That's the point of comparison I think you have to make. This movie is in that Con Air stratosphere. It's in the Con Air genre. It's in the... It's in it's in the Con Air arena. The Con Air arena. Con Air arena, yeah. Yeah. So... You said no one went to see this in the movie theater. I don't. I would be surprised if you told me this movie made a lot of money. It didn't make a lot of money, but it didn't make that much less than its budget. I don't know the conversion rate right off the top of my head. The budget was 17 million pounds, which I would think would be roughly 30 million dollars American. It made 22.2 million dollars at the box office. Mm-hmm. Which, not a great number, but not that much less than its budget. Yeah, and, and I gotta say, Matt, every penny of about half of that budget is on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> the The Wikipedia page for this movie is 
unlike any other movie's Wikipedia page I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, do tell. Do tell. For one, it has a list of influences. A list of movies that influenced this one. And the thing is, they're not that hard to guess. Yeah, like, I, I'm going to guess, like, Mad Max yeah. is in there. All three Mad Max movies that had been made at the time of this okay. movie's release in 2008. 28 Days Later, probably. 28 Days Later is talked about considerably in the yeah in the Wikipedia page. I don't, li- I mean, again, I don't want to spoil the surprise. For anyone who hasn't seen it, so I don't want to guess what influenced the fucking third act of this film. Well, I'll just read the rest of the influences that are listed. Escape from New York is one. Oh yeah, totally. Yes. She has one eye. (laughs) Excalibur Uh is is one that's given. The Warriors. Yeah, Yeah, I can see that. There are gangs. There are gangs in the movie. There are gangs, yeah. No Blade of Grass, which is a movie I've not seen. The Omega Man, which is a Buckwild movie, if you've never seen it. Is that the Sean Connery it's, uh, adaptation of I Am Legend? It's not Sean Connery. Charlton Heston. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Wild. Okay. But it is an adaptation of I Am Legend, yes. A boy an adaptation in- of the classic Will Smith, I Am Legend. Yes. A Boy and His Dog. Okay, the, the Harlan Ellison yeah. Story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Waterworld. <laughs> so that influenced the uh, the uh, box office gross. I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although the budget was considerably smaller than Waterworld's, the most expensive movie ever made at the time of its making. Gladiator. Okay. All right. And Children of Men. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It, but I mean, like the the weird thing is this: the weird thing is that I feel like you can definitely see the influence of Children of Men, but in terms of it, it's not in terms of like the subject matter or like the drama of Children of Men and the kind of like bleak and depressing premise and and the way that movie plays out. It's more influenced by Children of Men in that at one point in that movie, a dude does hit another dude with a car battery. <laughs> What's that guy's name, Matt? Wh- which guy are we talking about? Children of Men. Oh, Clive Owen. Clive Owen. Yeah, Clive Owen. That that guy that like was in everything and is now in nothing, as yeah, far as I know. The guy everybody thought was going to be James Bond, but then they yeah. picked Daniel Craig. Also of note, the critical response to Doomsday was not what you might think it was. Was it 100% love? From no, it wasn't 100% love, but it also wasn't 100% hate. According to Rotten Tomatoes, critics were split exactly down the middle, 50-50 on this movie. Interesting. 50% positive, 50% negative. 50% the, of critics got it, uh-huh. and 50% of critics have never rocked in their lives. It has an average score of 5.2 out of 10. And on Metacritic, it has an average score of 51. So everything is, like, dead middle. Right down the middle. Okay, like, the reason that I insisted that we watch this movie... uh, You and I have, like, a particular aesthetic of 
movies that we th- that kind of work on this show that we enjoy watching and eating snacks and talking about right yeah there's like, a there's a type of schlock cinema we love and this is it because i'll tell you this shit ain't boring <laughs> what are some movies that we love on that we've covered on the show matt miami connection miami connection is one, one. we uh ninja three ninja three the domination i would say this more than more than like <laughs> Children of Men. I would say Ninja Three: The Domination is very tight. Like this movie somehow was not made by the Canon Group, but but the Canon Group ideal lives on. Yes, very much so. But pre movie fighters, well, Street Fighter the movie is a great example. We did that one on movie fighters. Yes, which is is good actually. Which is good actually, as opposed to Street Fighter: The Legend of Chun Li, a movie you forgot about. I guarantee yeah. you forgot about it. Yeah. Yeah, starring starring Lana Lang. Starring Lana Lang. Another one we watched prior to starting Movie Fighters when we did movies on Comics Alliance was Superman 3, which is arguably a much bigger movie than all of these we're talking about, but is often maligned but is good actually. Mhm. And sort of has all of these schlock cinema affectations to it, I suppose. It's very, it's yeah. a very fine line. It's a very fine line between a schlock cinema movie that's good and a schlock cinema movie that's bad. Like one that absolutely should have been in that mix would have been, say, Barbed Wire, which we hated. Yeah. This movie is like, if for whatever reason, whatever completely normal reason, you are like, hey, I'm going to marathon some movies. If you want to do, like, the best of Movie Fighters movies, Uncle Drew, obviously, that's number one. But this is, I think, very much in the uh, Mortal Engines way of, it's so dumb that I love it. Uh, or or a uh, Dark Man. I feel like this movie could, like, Mortal Engines, Dark Man, this movie, that's a treat. That is a treat. We haven't talked about the cast of this movie at all yet. We mentioned that it was directed by Neil Marshall. We talked about Neil Marshall's filmography last month when we reviewed Hellboy, a bad movie mm-hmm. that he directed. Um, the lead actress in this movie is Rona Mitra, yes. who is playing a character in this inspired by Snake Plissken. They, they don't try to hide it in any way. Yeah. And Rodimitra has a career of being in, like, kind of terrible movies. She's made a career out of it. At the time of this movie, she was on uh, The Practice. Yeah. Uh, or I guess I guess she was. It was this was shortly after uh, she was on, like, The Practice in Boston Legal. Because that would have been, like, 2005-ish. She was also a Lara Croft. Not in a movie, but, like, at live events. Or I think maybe working booths. The the thing she had done on TV most closest to this was Nip Tuck. Mm-hmm. She was on five episodes of Nip Tuck. After this movie, she appeared on Stargate Universe and did a lot of uh, TV after that, honestly. But before yeah, you, may, you may recognize her as being Mercy Graves on the current Supergirl series. Yeah. Before that, she was in a number of movies. Uh, she had a relatively small role in Hollow Man. She was in the... Sylvester Stallone remake of Get Carter. 
She was in the terrible movie The Life of David Gale. She was in the terrible movie Stuck on You. She was in the terrible movie The Number 23. She was in the movie Underworld Rise of the Lycans. Mm. Mm. Interestingly, not replacing the person you might think she would be replacing in that movie. Yeah, look, I, I don't mean this as a as an insult to Rona Mitra, because I do think she's actually very good uh, and, and super fun in this movie, but she is kind of the, the great value Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> Pretty like. much. Pretty much. Kate Beckinsale is not in Underworld Rise of the Lycans. But really? She, no, but she's also not replacing Kate Beckinsale in that movie. She's replacing another actress. And then she's been in a lot of like smaller films in the 2010s. Most of these movies I've never heard of. She is in Hard Target 2. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing about Hard Target 2 is it's bullshit. What, you don't like Scott Adkins? Uh, no, I like Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> so that's the career of Rona Mitra. Here's the rest of the cast of this movie, which is wild. <laughs> yes. Bob Hoskins. Uh-huh. Malcolm McDowell. Oh, oh yes. Alexander Siddig. Uh-huh. The, Dr. Julian Bashir. Dr. Julian Bashir. It slash Rosal Ghoul. And then the rest is mostly Scottish actors filling out the rest of the roles, because this was set and filmed in Scotland, which is also worth noting one more thing from the Wikipedia page, which is the section with the bolded subheading, Scottish Response. Uh huh. I will read to you this, Chris, in total. Well, I, I guess I guess I, I need to preface this by saying that the premise of this movie is that Scotland has been walled off. Yes, much like New York in Escape from New York. Yes, Scotland's tourism agency visit Scotland welcomed Doomsday, hoping that the film would attract tourism by marketing Scotland to the rest of the world. <laughs> oh, did they? The country's national body for film and television, Scottish Screen, had contributed £300,000 to the production of Doomsday, which provided economic benefits for the cast and crew who dwelt in Scotland. A spokesperson from Scottish Screen anticipated, quote, It's likely to also attract a big audience who will see the extent to which Scotland can provide a flexible and diverse backdrop to all genres of film. In contrast, several parties have expressed concern that Doomsday presents negativity in England's latent view of Scotland based on their history. Angus McNeil, a member of the Scottish National Party, said of the film's impact, quote, The complimentary part is that people are thinking about Scotland as we are moving more and more towards independence. <laughs> but the film depicts a country that is still the plaything of London. It is decisions made in London that has led to it becoming a quarantine zone. Doomsday was not nominated or considered as a possible contender at the BAFTA Scotland Awards, despite being one of the largest productions in Scotland in recent memory. Two million pounds was spent on local services. Director Neil Marshall applied for membership with the organization to add fresh blood, but Doomsday was not mentioned during jury deliberations. According to a spokesperson from the organization, the film was not formally submitted for consideration, and no one directly invited the filmmakers to discuss a possible entry. Several of BAFTA Scotland's jury members believed that the criteria and procedures for a Scottish film were unclear and could have been more formalized. 
So there you go. Another mixed reaction. Though it is wild that Scotland's tourism board thought that this would bring more people to Scotland. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and say as a I would say fan of this movie, it is not a great advertisement for the country and fine people of Scotland. Oh, Matt, by the way, one 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 person you missed in the cast. This movie got Alfred in it. This movie do got Alfred in it. It got uh, Alfred in it. Alfred Sh- status? Check. That would be Alfred from the Gotham TV show, Sean Pertwee. <laughs> so so if you're expecting uh movie Alfred, either either of the movie Alfreds, or I guess any of the three? Because who we got? We got Michael Guff. Go. We got Michael. Mike. I believe it was Go. Go. I think it's Michael Go. We got Michael Kine. Michael Kine. We who, got who talks about how he was in Burma. <laughs> Master Master Wayne. Master Wayne. I was in Burma. I was in Burma, Master Wayne. I will not watch another Wayne die. <laughs> Do you know what I do when I go to Paris on vacation? <laughs> I, and then we've got Jeremy Irons. None of them are in this movie. Yeah. Nor nor is Alan Napier, who is very dead by the time this movie was made. Or, and I believe it also lacks Ephraim Zimblist. And uh, Jamie Blank. I can name every Alfred. <laughs> <Matt>. <laughs> All right, we're going to get into watching this movie. But before we do, Chris, it's time for the hottest segment in all of podcasting. Hell yes. It's time for a snack situation. Chris, what are you snacking on for Doomsday? Buddy, let me tell you. Four circumstances. Uh, my local farmer's market has uh, closed down for the foreseeable, which is, is a bummer for a lot of reasons. One of them being that uh, a lot of the local uh, retailers who set up at the farmer's market aren't getting their their products out fortunately several of them have made uh like home delivery an option uh so after matt i don't have to drink the bad coffee anymore i can drink the good coffee again oh that's uh, good. i'm very excited about that but uh my favorite uh salsa which is cilantro artisan foods uh which is run by two incredible uh women that uh, make the best salsa and the best pico de gallo and the best guacamole. Uh, they did home delivery and they told me when they came to the door, like this might be the last bag of chips because they use a uh, like a kitchen that has also been shut down for the foreseeable. But I actually, I, I grammed it. I put this on the gram over the past few weeks. I have stocked up. I have four bags of chips and like six jars of salsa and some pico. So I'm having my my favorite uh, chips and their smoky uh, salsa marita and and a little bit of pico. That's quite good. So what you're are you going on? you're going with a savory snack. I'm going with a sweet snack. You love your sweets. Also, in the time we're living in, a common hobby has become stress baking, and we did some of that this week. Marlene found a recipe for some peanut butter chocolate chip cookies mm. and made them. I believe this was on Tuesday or Wednesday. She made the dough, 
baked off about two thirds of the dough right then and there. And those cookies were good. They were very tasty. Also, our cat, one of our cats, not Harrison, Eleanor, seemed to love them. Where we had put them on a plate and covered them in plastic wrap overnight. The next morning, several of the cookies were out of the plastic wrap and like strewn around our kitchen. (laughs) And I think she ate some of them. Luckily, she didn't get sick. But we could tell that like all of those cookies had been (laughs) touched, licked, pawed by our cat. And we had to just kind of toss those. But we still had about a third of the dough left. So around Friday night, after the dough had been chilling in the fridge for a couple of days, I baked off the rest of those cookies. And let me tell you, that batch was even better. I also put them in a cat-proof container. So I'm eating one of those cookies right now. And if you think it's bullshit... When people say, hey, let your cookie dough sit in the fridge for a day or two before you bake the cookies, it ain't bullshit. It makes the cookies better. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. The flavor develops, my friend. Yeah, and they don't spread out in the oven. They stay together. It's uh, it's very good. I'm eating one of those very good cookies right now, and that is my snack. If you would like to watch... 2008's Doomsday, along with us. We ended up renting it from Redbox On Demand. It is available for rental in several places. It was previously on Shudder, but apparently is no longer on Shudder, unfortunately. does not seem to be streaming on any service anymore. But you can rent it. It's available for rent in very many places. Watch along with us if you wish. But whether or not you watch along with us, you are going to hear some promos for some other shows on the Greenlit Podcast Network and a musical interlude while we watch the movie. And then we're going to come back and talk about Doomsday. Hey, do you enjoy your commute but want to make it a little worse? It's real dumb. We hate ourselves. Hey, guys, you ever like something? Well, you won't in this case. Men like that. A podcast. They say with age comes wisdom. Well, over here at the Cartridge family, we only have one question. Who are they? (laughs) Join three imperfect dads as they juggle kids, wives, and jobs while indulging in their favorite hobby, playing video games. The Cartridge Family, a Greenlit Network podcast. And we are back from watching 2008's Doomsday, a movie that I am now fully convinced that if you watched it having not known the year that it was made, you'd be convinced it came out 20 years earlier. This movie came out the same year as The Dark Knight. Yeah, and I mean, this one's aged better, I think. <laughs> I think it holds up, because like every movie after The Dark Knight was, like, kind of The Dark Knight, right? Like, Skyfall is kind of the same movie. Like, any movie where halfway through the bad guy gets captured on purpose. Yeah. But no movies after Doomsday were like Doomsday. (laughs) Well, I think that's a pretty good comparison. The Dark Knight was an influential movie, right? Mm -hmm. Doomsday is an influenced movie. Yes, very much so. To the point where there are characters in this movie named after George Miller and John Carpenter. Yeah, yeah, it's not like a secret 
is the thing. No, every bit of homage is worn on this movie's sleeve. One that we did not talk about when we listed off all the influences earlier. I think we got most of them, but a big one is Aliens. Yes. A very big one is Aliens, especially in the first first half hour. Yeah, the first half hour. By the way, um, we probably should have said this before we cut to watch the movie, but we didn't really know then. If you're, like, stressed out, but you still want to watch along, maybe skip to, like, ten minutes in. Ten to fifteen minutes in. There's some stuff right up top that is weirdly familiar to everybody living in the world right now. But it also immediately jumps into the movie contagion thing that is totally outside the realm of reality. For example, like the big military built metal walls that people pound on constantly. Yeah, the the super virus, codenamed Reaper. The super virus that is mega contagious in a way that is not explained. Yeah, and also it like turns you into like like a cartoon of a leper. Yeah, it's it's not like somebody just gets it and gets sick and has a chance of surviving it. It's yeah. in, an instant death sentence to the point where as soon as you get it, military guys are shooting you and shooting other people in the crossfire. Yeah. And yeah, you get like big pustules all over your body and you become like a movie zombie. It's it's like yeah, I think super virus is the term for it. It's it's not like any realistic disease or illness. Yeah. It also spreads super fast and like is super lethal. But also they did have enough time to build a wall across Scotland. Yeah, I mean if you were existing right now, you know that things spread much slower than they do in movies. Whereas in this movie, it's made abundantly clear that our lead character uh, has 48 hours to get uh, into Scotland, find a cure, and get back to London where this virus has has uh, returned. Uh, which we'll get into that in the, the details of the plot in a minute. I did want to mention something, though, before we get into that, because if this was an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000... Uh-huh. And you heard our commentary through the movie. The runner, the big McLarge huge of this movie would have been Visit Scotland. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we learned before we started watching that Scotland's Tourism Bureau wanted to make this like a big selling point for visiting Scotland. And every time some, like, horrible torture or something was happening, we would say, visit Scotland. Yeah. Visit Scotland. And Matt, you've been to Scotland. You've been to the real-life Scotland. I have. How many, I guess, giant boxes full of explosives were just on the side of the road that you drove through? In the city, not so much. But I did take a train ride okay. where I saw, you know, I saw them out in the country. That's That's where they are, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. So here's – I wanted to read this bit of trivia from IMDb that makes that even wilder. 
Though the film takes place in London and Scotland, most of the principal photography was done in South Africa. The last scene shot on the continent before moving to the UK was the lengthy car chase with the Bentley crashing through the bus. It wasn't even mostly filmed in Scotland. Amazing. That's that's how much of a Mad Max ripoff this is, by the way. It's not just like the weird warriors gangs uh, and, and the cannibals. It's that there's a lengthy car chase at the end where people just drive through things that explode. Yeah, and it feels more like Mad Max 1 than any of the other Mad Max movies because there's a very well-kept road that most of the chase happens on. Mm-hmm. So as we said, the movie kicks off with this description of this Reaper virus that was initially completely contained to Scotland. Another thing that is very unrealistic about the virus in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But because it is completely contained to Scotland, Scotland is walled off from England and turned into a no-fly zone, and essentially everyone is just simply left there to die. We see our hero, Eden Sinclair, in her youth. She's approximately, what, five or six years old in this part? Sure. She gets caught up in the crossfire of one, an infected person getting shot by military personnel, and her eye gets shot out. Luckily, she is not otherwise injured. She just loses her eye. Yeah, she just gets shot in the eye with, like, a machine gun. <laughs> and it doesn't go into her brain. She only loses her eye. Yeah, like, directly in the eye with an assault rifle. For reasons that are not super well explained, Eden's mom hands her off, her her daughter, off to some military guys in the hel- in a helicopter, and they take her. Um, I'm a little worried that you need it explained that it's because she loves her daughter and wanted her to survive. No, no, no. I, I'm not saying that. That's that's obvious. That's clear. <laughs> I'm saying okay, okay. Why is this one child taken away when everybody else is getting their arms chopped off by a closing giant metal door? Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like a great plan like if everybody has the potential to be infected why wouldn't this six-year-old also have that potential yeah i don't know man like what is it about this girl like it's maybe there's like a cut scene that explains why she's the one who got taken off taken away from scotland and taken to england but boy i didn't get it i didn't get that explained yeah, I I honestly have no idea. But anyway, we skip I'm not ahead. I'm really sure who those dudes are. <laughs> There's some kind of military guys. They're, they're guys with a helicopter. That's all I know. We skip ahead 27 years to 2035. And we're in London. And in London, we see what Eden Sinclair is up to now now called Major Sinclair. She's like a covert ops agent, wearing a uniform that includes a a baseball cap, so it looks very Demolition Man. 
It's ex- it's an extremely demolition man uniform. And we see like her team they're doing something on like a on a, a cargo ship and they just shoot a bunch of guys. <laughs> it's basically what happens. Yeah, there's a they shoot a bunch of guys. There's also a naked lady in a bathtub with with a shotgun. Uh-huh. Yep. Which is like I I always think about that um Ryan North that dinosaur comics strip where it's like there is a certain strain of action movie that just has like brief nudity in it under siege when Eric Eliniak pops out of the cake. Yeah. Matt uh, this movie with the naked lady in the bathtub. And Ryan North made the point that why is that in there? Cause like, it's not, it it's not like long enough to get excited about. It just makes it weird when you're watching this movie with your parents. It's true. It's like the naked duck puppet and Howard the duck. Also in a bathtub. Oh boy. What a weird moment in a film. Yeah. So her team, you know, is successful in this mission. And we see her sitting outside of the ship, the mission successful, talking to Bob Hoskins, who is the domestic security chief for the UK. His name is Captain Nelson. They have a conversation about, like, how he's her mentor, and she always bums cigarettes off of him, and... You know, they have this mutual respect and admiration, and it's about all of the character development we're going to get in the movie. (laughs) Pretty much. Also, it's worth noting that she has a fake eye that is a computer eye that she can roll around and use to get footage of people. It's got, like, a camera in it. Yeah, you remember how she got shot in the eye. Mm-hmm. Right, as a child. Well, when she grew up, they... Matt, I have actually never stopped to think about the mechanics of this eye. Because it just pops right out, and it's like a big old marble. She literally, like, rolls it on the ground. Yep. And then she can control it and look through it. Yeah. Um, then, after rolling it around on the ground, she puts it back in her face. Yeah, she puts it back in her face, and, like, presumably she can see through it. Presumably. When it's out of her head, using its night vision mode, she has to look at her watch. Because she has a little screen on her watch. But, like, is it just occupying a space in her head when she's not using it like that? And Just like a, like a typical glass eye. Yeah. And if, if not, then is it just, like, Bluetoothing to the, her visual cortex? It's gotta be Bluetoothing. Yeah. It's a, it's a like, Bluetooth eye. It's not, like, connected to anything. Like, Star Trek The Next Generation takes place in the 24th century, and Geordi still had those little USB ports on the side of his head. (laughs) It's also worth noting that because of its treatment of Scotland, because of (laughs) basically sentencing everyone in Scotland to a horrible death, The United Kingdom has become a global pariah, and no one will trade with them or otherwise give them economic opportunities. So it has become a complete dystopia. Like, nobody has jobs. It's it's a a rough place to be. Which is why everybody has, like, flip phones. 
<laughs> yeah, in 2035, everybody still has 2008 yeah. technology. <laughs> On a routine mission, a group of cops finds a uh, room in this sort of like Hooverville town in London, which London is apparently full of. They find a bunch of people infected with the Reaper virus and realize that the Reaper virus has returned and is now in London. And for fear of having to shut off all of London like they had to do with Scotland, they have to come up with a quick plan to find a cure. Mm-hmm. Turns out there are people still alive in Scotland, meaning that there must be some kind of cure in Scotland that people could go in and retrieve. So the Prime Minister, John Hatcher, calls up Captain Nelson and has Nelson send uh, Sinclair and a team of other soldier types into Scotland covertly to try to recover this cure. Now, there's a no-fly zone over Scotland, so they can't go in by helicopter. Instead, they're going to have to drive in using these like big tank-like vehicles uh, and, uh, and try to find the cure, who they assume is being held by a medical researcher named Dr. Kane. Yeah, um, Matt, you say that there's a no-fly zone, so they're not going to go in with the helicopter. They do literally just go in with a helicopter later on in the film. At the very end of the movie, yes. Yeah, when it is, when we're all tired of being here, when it a is helicopter shows up. Narratively expedient to have a helicopter. There's a yeah. helicopter. Okay, fair. Also, uh, I do, I love the subtlety of this movie, where the, the, the prime minister who's like willing to let this virus run unchecked through a community that they don't like uh, is named Hatcher. Yeah. It's amazing that Alexander Siddick is not named like Tar Targrit Hatcher. Tar- Targrit Hatcher, yeah. Also, it's worth noting that Alexander Siddig uh, is Malcolm McDowell's nephew, and they're both in this movie. They're they're like the in, leaders in, of in the in real life. In real life, yeah, they're uh, hmm. they're playing the the opposite leaders of the two the two key groups. So that team of Aliens types heads into Glasgow in their big tactical tank vehicles, and they go into this hospital looking for Dr. Kane. Dr. Kane is not there. Instead, what they find is a just absolutely rabid group of uh, Mad Max types, let's say. Yeah, I, th- <laughs> I think that's charitable. To even call them types. Yeah, th- th- these are people in, you know, wasteland gear with mohawks uh, attacking them constantly. And there's a long action sequence of the military types, the space marine types, shooting at the Mad Max types while they charge toward them with, like, bats. Mm-hmm. A lot of the colonial marine types die. In this sequence, uh, only a handful of survivors, including Eden Sinclair. 
but the survivors that are left get captured and take it to basically a Thunderdome. <laughs> I think it would be fair to call this basically a Thunderdome. Uh, again, you are using the word basically, which I think is quite charitable. <laughs> In this Thunderdome, Sinclair is tortured and kind of left in a room by herself while the leader of the you know Scottish Mad Max style faction talks to talks to this huge group of people gets them all riled up does his like big leader speech in front of a big mural of a skull and essentially says all right we said anybody who came in here we were going to eat them. So now it's time to eat them. And they take one of the soldiers. I believe it's one. Of, it's the one played by Sean Pertwee, uh, whose character name is Dr. Talbot. He's an Alfred. He's an Alfred. He gets burned alive. Yeah, they, they, like, tie him to the front of a car. But it's like he's a... It's like he's a figurehead on a boat, like the way it's it's arranged. Am I remembering this correctly, Matt? Like you it's are. like it has a what do you call it? A a a, a bowsprit? Bowsprit? I don't know what it's called, but yeah. It's the thing on the front of the boat where the figurehead goes. He's like yeah. that, but he's tied there, and then they hit him with a flamethrower until he, he's dead. And he doesn't just get cooked, he gets burned to a crisp. Yeah. And then everybody eats him. The leader of the Mad Max type group is called Saul, by the way. His name is Saul. Yeah. A uh, couple things about this, I think. A, there's like 50 people there. And I don't know if like, once you once you take out like Bones and like his shoes, because he is fully clothed at the time, and like other inedible parts like i don't know if one human body could feed 50 he's basically like a six foot party sub right yeah he's that's not for 50 people he's basically a six foot party sub and he gets burned right like he's not even burned cooked but people eat him and as a gesture i guess to sinclair they bring a piece of him to her like little cell pretty decent sized piece and throw it down and say, well, what's the line? It's like, hungry? Why don't you try a little of your friend? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. That'll be a callback later, but uh-huh. not in a way that matters. <laughs> I think it's, why don't you have a piece of your friend? Maybe. So Sinclair does not like this very much, and she uses this opportunity to break from her bonds and uh, kick a bunch of ass and escape. Along with uh, the young girl, the young woman, who her team found like chained up in another cell elsewhere. All of this will become important because we do learn around here that Saul and this girl are brother and sister. Uh, that yes. her name is her name is Callie. And Callie and Saul are brother and sister. And she's also Cain's daughter. <laughs> yeah, we find that out later. 
Is that did we find that, I thought we found that out at this point when we we find uh, it out pretty soon after. Okay. We find it out pretty soon after this. As they're escaping from Glasgow, we find out that Callie is Kane's daughter as well as Saul's brother. So Saul is Kane's son as well. But we still don't know where Kane is. But Callie informs the, the people who are left, the soldiers who are left, Sinclair and the others, that she knows where Cain is, and they need to go through this secret set of tunnels to get there. So they go into the tunnels, they travel through the tunnels, and finally they emerge in this far more remote area where there is a castle. And as they're walking through the woods, they are approached by a knight on a horse, <laughs> which is described as Cain's uh, top executioner. So things get kind of weird at this point. There are knights on horses now. Y- yeah. Now they're in medieval times. And, and okay, to be fair, I was misremembering a little bit. Uh, because it has been, tw- what, 27 years, which is a good amount of time. Yeah. I don't know if it's necessarily as much time as it would take you to, like, g- become King Arthur times and convince people that they should do that. Because these are, like, full-on, full-on King Arthur times. Yeah. They are wearing, like, jerkins. Oh, yeah. Like... We we come to find out that Cain has essentially declared himself king of Scotland. And he's wearing like Henry VIII clothes. <laughs> he looks like Patrick Stewart from Elder Scrolls Oblivion. Mm. He's he's in like full medieval king garb and there are like gladi- gladiatorial Events, but they're they're more like you know, sort of like medieval jousts. That Sinclair gets. He's gone. He's gone. FMK. That's right. FMK. Full medieval king. Yeah. So when they get to the castle, they they dispatch that executioner and some of the other uh, knights on horses. Even though a couple of other. Unnecessary, unimportant characters die. They eventually do make it to the castle, and they get an audience with Cain. And one funny detail is that in the castle, all the signage from when it was a tourist destination is still there. (laughs) So, like, which may have been a necessity of filming at a real castle, I suspect. But like there are signs up that still point to the gift shop or that show where the exit is or you know tell tourists where to go within the castle. Because I do feel like 30 years in I would have taken that down. <laughs> I think it is a pretty funny detail though. So finally they get an audience with Kane and Kane has like lost his damn mind. <laughs> Turns out yeah. there is no cure for the Reaper virus. 
merely some people are immune to it. And Cain and his family happen to be immune to it. And because of his immunity, he has declared himself King of Scotland. Despite the fact that I guess all the other people who were still alive were also immune to it. Right? Like, I mean, Cain's not the only immune person. Everyone who's older than 27, presumably. Yeah, which it seems like there are some people. I guess Cain is maybe the oldest person still alive in Scotland, possibly. Yeah, and if you are the oldest person still alive, then you are king. And that's just how that works. Is it implied, do you think, that everyone is Cain's sons and daughters? Mm, well, no, I wouldn't think so. I don't think so. But, like, now that you've brought it up, like, I can't say for sure that it's not. I don't yeah, think it is, though. I I don't know. But whatever the case, Sinclair gets thrown into, like, some, you know, joust, gladiatorial, whatever kind of spectator stuff. And uh, she kicks everybody's ass. She manages to escape. Uh, and gets away with also Callie and one of the only I think there are two of the space marines still alive uh, Norton and Sterling they go back into the tunnels and in the tunnels they find this big storage facility kind of thing full of these crates and they can't decide which crate to open which might have what they need to try to get out of there but finally, they just decide to randomly open one. And what's in there? But a pristine, brand new, shiny, 2007 Bentley Continental GT. <laughs> Fully intact. Fully intact. Gassed up. Gassed up. Battery works. It Tires. It, clutch. Yep. Everything everything's is in, good. Everything's in perfect working order. So they get in that Bentley, they bust out of there, and they make their way back, hopefully trying to get back to England. Because the plan is, they're going to take Callie back to England. Because even though the Scots never synthesized a cure, because Kane's family has an immunity to it, they feel like they can synthesize a vaccine from their blood. So they start heading toward England, but on the way, of course, they are intercepted by the Mad Maxians, the Saul group, who try to defeat them in various ways. But after much stunt driving and shooting and people hanging out of car doors and driving through giant containers of gas that explode, finally, uh, Sinclair ends up driving the Bentley through a bus, and it just cuts through that bus like a butter. And the bus explodes. The bus and explodes. Ev everyone gets dealt with. Also, when she drives through the bus, uh, Saul is on top of her car, and he gets exploded. He gets just exploded right up. He gets exploded right up, but his head is completely intact and also like flies directly at and crashes into the camera. Well, I believe he's still screaming, shit! Yeah, yeah he does scream. He's, he's just screaming unintelligibly. The guy in the car is screaming, shit! For like a full minute. Yeah. 
Also, back in England, some events have been transpiring. <laughs> As they usually are. Yeah. Uh, back in London, the things have gotten worse. Uh, people are rioting in the streets. Sick people. The virus has spread considerably. People are sick everywhere. And one particularly malevolent zombie with the Reaper virus decides to break into the Prime Minister's office, which is not 10 Downing Street. It's some kind of like fortified fortress. Yeah, man, because it may or may not be England. (laughs) True. So this one zombie gets into the fortified prime minister's office by killing a guard, taking his hand, using his hand scan, the guard's hand on the hand scanner, then using the guard's eye on an eye scanner, getting in an elevator, going up, rushing toward the prime minister. And Bob Hoskins has to shoot that zombie dead, but the blood gets all over the prime minister, prime minister Hatcher. And, they know from that moment that he's a goner because he's got blood all over him. In fact, he has it like right in his mouth or right by his mouth, and he he like sticks out his tongue and like licks it. <laughs> it's gross. Yeah, he gets confined into his office office, like the room with his desk in it, and he takes out his old fashioned revolver from his desk and shoots himself, leaving. A sort of kind of villain of the movie in charge, this guy, Canaris, who is also Scottish. Somehow he's like another Scottish person who managed to live in London and get into a huge, like, major uh, position of power. So now Canaris is in charge, even though it's clear he's got, like, very ill intentions. Canaris jumps in a helicopter and meets Sinclair after she's dispatched all the Mad Max people in Scotland. They hand Callie over to him, even though the last surviving soldier guy, Sterling, is very against it. And Canaris gives this speech about how, like, we'll let the virus... Uh, tear away the flesh, tear away the dead flesh, and then when the time is right, we'll unleash the the vaccine and be the heroes. Yeah. They're going to let the virus kill off all the poor people uh, and then cure it. Yeah. So he thinks he's won. They fly off with Callie, and Sinclair decides to stay in Scotland. Which I don't really understand, because it is very bad there. It is very bad there, yes. But she has, all she has, she has a a scribbled note in a Ziploc bag that tells her her mother's address in Scotland. Mm -hmm. So the first place she goes is there to try to remind herself of her mother. And... She goes there. Also, while she is still in Scotland, she broadcasts, because she's got her little video eye, mm-hmm. she broadcasts everything that Canaris said 
to basically everybody in England, revealing him as the terrible villain that he is. Yeah. So seemingly, he's going to topple, and they're going to go ahead and make the vaccine now so that more people get saved. The Bob Hoskins character meets her at her mom's house. They have another little brief conversation that doesn't really push their characters forward at all. And then she goes back to Glasgow, finds the Mad Max marauders, throws Saul's head, his severed head, down on the ground and says, if you're hungry, how about you try a piece of your friend? And all the marauders cheer at this because they love a callback. And now I suppose Eden Sinclair is now the leader of this band of Mad Max people. Yeah, I guess she's the Queen of Scotland now? Chris, what have we got for high points of Doomsday? Oh, it's great. (laughs) That would be like my, my big high point would be like, yeah, it's great. Here's what I like about this movie a lot. Okay. It very accurately captures the look and feel of an action movie from 1987. Uh-huh. Down to the like technology of it. Like we talked about how Escape from New York was a big influence on this movie. And it starts exactly like Escape from New York where you know this tough character with one eye gets put on a helicopter to go to a locked down area to try to do something for a person in power, whether it be a president or a prime minister. It d- it does all the stuff, you know, it, it has the aliens action. It has the Mad Max action. It has the escape from New York action. It is clearly a love letter to all those movies and does manage to pull off the look and feel of all those movies. I think. Yeah. It's almost like it's almost like a Zucker Brothers parody of <laughs> 80s action movies. Except it is not a parody. Like it's it's very serious. <laughs> it's an impression. It's a It's an impression. Yeah, it's doing an impression. They're good impressions though. Yeah, I guess to be more charitable, it's a a love letter or homage. And on that level, I think it does very much succeed. It, it, Again, if you did not tell me that this movie was made in 2008, I never would have guessed it was made in 2008. Mm-hmm. I would have guessed it was made 20 years earlier, maybe, or at least like in the 90s when people were still kind of processing action movies of the 80s. Even down to the point where, and I I pointed this out, there was a time where every 80s action movie villain looked the same. (laughs) Like, they all had a particular look. And I don't mean just in Mad Max movies. I mean in all movies. Yeah. In, say, your uh, Death Wish 3s. In, say, your Commandos. Yeah. They all kind of had, like, a vaguely punk aesthetic. Right? Right. And that is throughout this thing. Until they go to medieval times, that is throughout this thing. Yeah. For 
Sure. Quickly, to your to your previous point, Matt, this movie doesn't feel like it should be set in 2035. It feels like it should be set in the far-off future of 1999. <laughs> yeah, or 20XX. <laughs> yeah, or 2001. Like, that's the kind of movie this is. Um, I love that 90% of the special effects of, in this movie are essentially like filling a water balloon with blood and throwing it. Yes, that is also another reason why it feels very 80s. Because a movie that this movie doesn't cite as a as an influence and you might not think of as something this movie is like is RoboCop. But there's a scene when somebody gets run over by a bus in this and they just explode into blood. Uh-huh. Into like blood and viscera. That's exactly like when the guy in like the tar pit gets run over in Robocop. Yeah, there's there's a bit where uh when she first gets to the wall separated <laughs> to the walled off Scotland, uh where they're like, yeah there aren't any more soldiers here because they automated all these systems. And now they mostly just spend all their ammo on the livestock. And it cuts to this like giant, this turbo laser, it's like death star, uh, turbo laser, giant gun on top of this thing, uh, shooting a rabbit. And the rabbit just explodes. Like it is shot of a rabbit shot yep. of the gun, gun fires back to the shot of the rabbit for half a second. Rabbit explodes. <laughs> it's like Scanner's guy head exploding levels of yeah. blood and viscera. Yeah, it's wild. Chris, what have we got for low points from this movie? Uh, you mentioned while we were watching that Rona Mitra is not bad, but she is playing a character who is incredibly boring. Well, I think her performance as that character is fairly boring. But she's a good action hero, if that makes sense. Like, she's very convincing as in the action parts. She's got the look for it. The fight choreography is is good for the most part. But I don't care about Eden Sinclair at all. And I think you could say that of basically every other character in this movie, too. They don't give you a lot to care about with them. Yeah, Like, even Canaris is just kind of vaguely menacing, but you don't have much of a reason to hate him until the end of the movie, where he, like, reveals that he's not going to cure people right away, you know? Yeah. I think, if anything, like, she's trying to do, like, the the, 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 the snake. Uh, snake plus gun. Where Kurt Russell shows zero emotions other than contempt throughout yeah. that entire uh, story, but she still has to be a character who is motivated by the loss of her mother and this desire to get back to the home she never really knew, uh, which is incompatible with that. Well, at the same time, and look, I don't want to put too fine of a point on this, but Rona Mitra is no Kurt Russell. Yeah, I mean, like, who is, you know? Kurt Russell exudes natural charisma. Yes. You instantly like him. And Rodimitra is not a bad actress by any stretch, but she ain't that. Yeah, I, I feel like there's very few people who have that kind of charisma. It's 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 Kurt Russell and uh, The Mandalorian. 
<laughs> yeah, pretty much. Another low point I want to point out is uh, the music choices, which are almost so weird and bad and confusing that they verge into nearly being good. But they're so weird. Like, for example, during the big Thunderdome scene, where Saul is like strutting around on the stage and slapping dancers on the butt and talking about how they're about to eat people, the song Good Thing by the band Fine Young Cannibals is playing. Mm-hmm. Chris. <laughs> uh, later on in the movie, you realize that one of the songs was Two Tribes. Yeah, the song that, like, which plays, I think, in its entirety over the very long chase sequence at the end. Yeah, that is by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. There's also uh, the song Dog Eat Dog by Adam and the Ants in this movie. Like, based on the fact that this is all, like, first of all, it's all, like, 80s pop. Which, again, makes you think that this movie is from a lot earlier than it is. But second, it's like this kind of, like, mid-tempo radio pop. It's not high energy. It's not explosive or exciting. It almost feels ironic. Like, yeah. it, would, it, it would play into your theory that this feels like a parody. Yeah, it's... It's almost... I, I think that's what it is. Almost ironic. Because Two Tribes, if you're not familiar with it, it starts with, like, a very, like... 80s action movie beat, right? And it's not like for a minute. That's why I didn't realize what it was. Because it's not for a minute that it that it kicks in. It's a really good song. But like it feels like it's gonna turn into like a a John Carpenter soundtrack. Like it feels like it's about to turn into They Live. Yeah, like uh, no song in this movie is from the decade it came out. Yeah. It's all from either the 80s or maybe the early 90s. However, the score, it's more confusing because the score sounds like 28 Days Later. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a, a weird mishmash of sounds. And I found the music to be like <sighs> jarring in such a way that it took me out of the movie. Yeah, I can I can absolutely see that. Cuz it's it's never it should be like diegetic, right? Like the scene where where Saul is like Ric Flair dancing across the stage. It's diegetic in that scene, but like Ronometra should like reach down and crank up two tribes in that well, scene. Yes, but it, even in the scene where Saul is dancing around and shit, it's like would you really expect those people with mohawks and like netted shirts and shit to be into fine young cannibals? Except for the fact that they have cannibals in the name of their band. They are cannibals, yeah. <laughs> that would be the issue, I think, is that they are literally cannibals. Yeah. Like, did they find a CD and they're like, hey, like us? You know? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Chris, what are our final thoughts about Doomsday? I had to, te- I had to text you this so that uh, I wouldn't forget it. This movie 
is like if Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. were the same movie. It's very accurate. It's a very accurate observation. Like, kind of happening at the same time. And that, like, that is, I think, this movie's greatest strength and also its greatest failing. Because it should be 10% more ironic. It should be 10% more self-aware. It should have 10% more fun with what it's doing. Because, like, Neil Marshall knows this movie's dumb. Clearly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's, he, he there's explodes a rabbit. There's a clear level of self-awareness evident in the film itself. Yeah, but it doesn't quite do what you want it to do, I guess. Like, it doesn't quite get to the point of being, of really being weird. I mean, it is super weird, but like, it needs to go just a little bit further. Well, I think a big part of it, I think... As long as you go into this movie expecting a certain thing, you will come out having enjoyed it. But the expectation you need to have is that it's going to be a bunch of influences thrown together Mm -hmm. in a big old pot and stirred up. And not that it's going to be a coherent film with characters you give a shit about. Right. Because it's not going to be that. It, it needs a third thing, right? Like, it needs, it's got the Mad Max guys, it's got the Ren Faire guys. It needs a third thing. There needs to be something else between those. Yeah. It, it is a, a jarring shift from one to yeah. the other. Yeah. I, I will say, talking about the when this movie was made, the one thing that makes it convincingly 2008 is the editing of the action. Oh, very much so, yes. It's a lot of quick cuts. It's a lot of handheld camera. It's a lot of like, wait, what happened? Kind of action editing, which I don't think is full-on terrible. But I think if we held on some of those shots a little more and some of the action was a little more easy to follow. This could be a cult classic in a way that it has not become. The The one thing that's current in it is the thing that makes it not a cult classic. And I think it's the action editing, the editing in the action sequences. Yeah, this this should be a cult classic, but it's not quite there. It doesn't have... It doesn't have Lone Wolf McQuaid driving out of his own grave. <laughs> yeah. You know, it doesn't have, it It doesn't, oh, what's the weird thing in Cobra, Matt? You know, weird thing in Cobra. He does something weird, and I can't remember what it is. I've never actually seen Cobra. Uh, it's not good. <laughs> it, it doesn't have, it doesn't have, uh, remember how I said I'd kill you last? I lied. Like it yeah, doesn't yeah, yeah. have that, and you want it to have that. I. It would be great if the villain was chewing scenery mm-hmm. instead of talking at a talking at a low monotone all the time. Yeah, he needs to be bigger. He needs to be turned up several spot like. On the on the dial, on his amplifier, 
He's at like a four. Yeah. And he needs to be a nine or ten, if not an eleven. Yeah. But the, he's not he's neither the Duke of New York, nor is he uh the Che Guevara guy who makes Snake Bliskin play basketball. Yeah. His, that actor's name is David O'Hara. He's from Glasgow. Uh he plays Canaris, and everything is just like this low monotone. Every line. He's always like way too even keeled. Like even Malcolm McDowell, who you would expect to maybe chew some scenery, does he does a little more. He certainly does more scenery chewing than David O'Hara does. Yeah. But he could even turn it up a little bit. Interestingly, Malcolm McDowell narrates the whole first half of the movie also. also. Well, I think, <laughs> and, I think, which is wild to find out when we discover that he has lost his mind. I think that's supposed to be his transmissions. Because he leaves like an audio log like from a video game. Like from Bioshock. Yeah. He, he, he leaves, like, he recorded... 90 seconds of audio and then threw that recorder away and and it and then he just had to keep going well we had fun watching doomsday if we hope it didn't trigger any anxiety in you it's it's similar but also way 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 different from our current situation so we hope you had fun watching it or listening to us talk about it. We're going to be back in April with another movie. We have some plans. We have some plans, folks. We do have some plans. Uh, so we'll be back with another movie. Uh, we wanted to let you know that our music is by Michael Kill. The Snack Situation theme is by Matt Fisher. If you want to follow us online, I'm at mattdwilson.net. You can find links to everything that I do there. Chris, where can people find you? Everybody can find me by going to the-isb.com, and that'll have links to everything that I do. You can email us at moviefighterscast at gmail.com. Our website is moviefighterscast.com. That has every episode of the show, except for our episodes on Bandcamp, which you can still buy. See you in April, everybody. Stay safe. Don't go out if you don't have to. And uh, stay healthy. Yeah. Bye, everybody. This has been a Kaleidos Media Production.